This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for December 14th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, today I'd like to spend some time talking about other viral outbreaks and then think about what we've learned from these diseases that can be applied to COVID. So I'd like to discuss two studies that we've published today. Let's start with MPOX, the disease that was previously called monkeypox. The vast majority of cases during the current international outbreak have occurred through close skin-to-skin contact, and they've largely been among men who have sex with men. But today we published an account of a different mode of transmission. What did we learn here? Steve, this is a group of investigators from Spain who studied an outbreak of mpox that occurred in a tattoo parlor. The outbreak occurred over a period of a couple of weeks, and during that time, 21 out of the 58 customers who were seen at that business developed mpox. They were predominantly women, they had no history of high-risk sexual activity, and no known close contacts with MPOX patients. The patients first developed lesions at the site of the tattoo or of a piercing, with many going on to have systemic symptoms. An investigation revealed MPOX on most of the instruments used for tattooing or piercing. There was one secondary case that occurred in the mother of one of the patients, but there were several other contacts who received vaccine. So unlike COVID, the rate of transmission of MPOX has dropped considerably. So what is it about MPOX that has allowed for this success? I think that there are a number of elements, but I'd put two at the very top. One is that it's fairly easy to identify patients who are transmissible because they have symptoms and skin lesions. So that means we can use sort of traditional measures of controlling infectious diseases, isolating infected patients. The second is that this disease has been present in a community that's very engaged in public health practices and very aware of what's going on. And that's allowed good access to vaccination, which might be playing a role, and a lot of sensitivity about the disease and how to avoid it. So I think that those two factors probably are playing the major parts in the success of decreasing the rates of transmission. So Eric, I want to sort of highlight one of your points and raise another one. One of the reasons we were able to eradicate smallpox 40, 50 years ago was there were very few, if no asymptomatic cases, or if they were, they were not transmissible. So those who were infected became ill and had distinguishable lesions pretty reliably. And that allowed case identification as well as abrogation of forward transmission. We don't fully know the spectrum of illness with MPOX, but very likely there is limited asymptomatic acquisition, or if there is, those who have a very mild illness may not be efficient spreaders. We need to understand that better, but that may be a property of pox viruses that allows us to better control. The other is that this is largely contact spread. So unlike respiratory viruses that we're dealing with throughout our communities, this typically requires some type of physical contact. As we see in the letter that we are publishing, that contact can be through physical action like a tattoo parlor or other arenas where there's physical contact as well as behavior. But that contact spread requires a more intense interaction than things which are droplet or aerosol. And I think that these biologic features of the virus and the illness it causes also lends it to responses which can more easily control further spread. 
Yeah, I think those are great points. Smallpox, by contrast, is very highly transmissible. But smallpox, on the other hand, is much easier to diagnose. The full-blown disease is very evident, whereas mpox during this outbreak has been showing up in all kinds of ways and can be relatively subtle with single lesions that are not very distinctive. Nevertheless, it does seem that these less symptomatic cases are likely to be less transmissible. So we've benefited from biology here. Today, we also published a study of Ebola vaccines. As we've talked about in recent weeks, there's currently an outbreak of Ebola in Uganda, and it's being caused by the Sudan Ebola virus, not the Zaire Ebola virus that caused several recent outbreaks in West Africa. Since Sudan Ebola is antigenically distinct, we haven't had a vaccine for the disease. But we do have vaccines for Zaire Ebola, and we're still figuring out how to best use them. So today's study compared different vaccines and different regimens. Before we talk about the results, what are the vaccines that were studied? The group looked at three different vaccines, but all of them are based on a similar premise. They all use relatively harmless viruses as carriers for the surface glycoprotein of the Ebola virus. One of them uses the same adenovirus vector called AD26, that was used for the COVID vaccine that Johnson & Johnson made. Another used a modified vaccinia virus, the virus that was used to vaccinate against smallpox. And a third uses an animal virus, vesicular stomatitis virus, or VSV. The VSV vaccine is approved to use as a single dose. And that's pretty important because an effective single dose vaccine is very important during an outbreak, as it's important to try to protect contacts and you can't wait for two doses of vaccine in order to induce immunity. The other two vaccines are given in two doses, what's called a prime boost strategy, with the AD26 vaccine given first and the vaccinia vaccine administered a couple of months later. Of course, if you have two doses, that's not going to be so good for contacts and really is primarily used for lower risk individuals. Eric, I think you raise an important point about thinking about countermeasures and how they can be used. Vaccines that take a while to induce a protective immune response are incredibly valuable and helpful, but they're best used in a prophylactic setting prior to an outbreak or a large infectious event. While I think about reactive countermeasures, such as a vaccine that can work very quickly, as potentially being useful during an outbreak event because it can elicit immune responses and potentially protection much more quickly, thus allowing deployment while ongoing transmission is going on to block transmission. And I think that's what we saw about six, seven years ago with the prior Ebola Zaire outbreak in West Africa, where a single dose of the VSV vaccine was able to prevent secondary spread. And I think we need to understand the properties of the countermeasure and the kinetics of protection to understand how to deploy either in a prophylactic setting or in a reactive setting to have benefit. So getting back to today's study, what was the goal and what did the investigators find? The investigators wanted to determine how well different vaccines worked with different administration regimens. The problem with studying Ebola is similar to some other diseases in that the disease is so rare that you really can't measure clinical efficacy. Instead, in this study, they used antibody titers and measured the strength of response and how long the protective response might persist. What makes this a bit challenging is that there's no agreed-upon standard for what constitutes a protective immune response. Nevertheless, there's no question that antibodies are protective in animal studies and that 
higher titers are better. It is possible to extrapolate from clinical studies and get some estimate of a threshold for protection, though, and the investigators reported that in this work. The results are very specific for these vaccines and this disease, so I won't go into many of the details. However, there were some general takeaways. First, the vaccines were safe, which was very reassuring. Second, most participants did develop a likely protective titer of antibodies. And third, it took a couple of weeks for most of them to develop these protective titers. So early vaccination is critically important. This study did suggest that the VSV vaccine did produce antibody earlier than the other regimens. And so it remains after this study, I think, the vaccine of choice for those who are recent contacts. And finally, boosting helped, but only for a few months, after which the titers fell close to what they were before the booster dose. I find these results pretty reassuring altogether. I think they suggest that the regimens we're using will help with outbreaks. Since the trial only lasted for 12 months, though, we don't know if people who receive vaccines will obtain long-lasting immunity. So, Eric, I think you raised the point of how do we assess if something works or is efficacious? And I think what these investigators are showing us is the importance of doing studies during the interpandemic period, something which we quickly forget about. How do we, when an epidemic has subsided, what research do we do to advance knowledge so we're prepared for when an epidemic does occur? Because during an epidemic, one can get clinical outcomes, and that is always the best level of evidence. The problem is with an epidemic, it's too late. So in this setting, when no epidemic is going on, these investigators studied how to look at different regimens to see if they are safe, which they saw no safety concerns, and if they elicit immune responses that are favorable and potentially durable, or at least durable lasting a year. I do find it interesting to look at the three regimens that they looked at because the AD26 and the Vaccinia vaccine were used together, as you said, in a prime boost. While the VSV was studied in two different ways, as a prime plus a boost of VSV or as a single immunization. And from the two different VSV arms, we do see augmented immunity after the second dose, but at one year, the immunity looked similar. How does that inform us of the right vaccine regimen for longer lasting immune responses. I think it is terrific that this kind of work is done during a non-pandemic period. So we're able to generate these kinds of data to inform our strategies going forward as we try to develop better vaccines against Ebola. Just to reiterate your last point, Lindsay, it applies very much to MPOX where we didn't do these studies before there was an outbreak internationally. And it really would have been useful to have a vaccine that we knew worked in areas where mpox is actually endemic in Africa. And so doing these trials in advance of an outbreak is really advantageous. So just further amplify that, I hope as we go forward as a scientific and global community, we think about how to do these studies that can give us critical data prior to a crisis so we are better prepared. And there are several pathogens of concern circulating globally that it would be valuable to have more data on developing countermeasures. And it requires global will and global coordination to develop these countermeasures and the data needed to know how to use and deploy them. Getting back to Ebola, what does all that you've said 
mean for controlling the disease going forward? Vaccines are only one piece of Ebola control. In fact, before we had vaccines, which wasn't very long ago, we were able to bring epidemics under control by rapidly identifying cases, isolating them, and doing contact tracing and quarantine. Now we have the additional tool of vaccination, which can be deployed in a ring vaccination strategy to vaccinate contacts and contacts of those contacts and help more rapidly bring Ebola outbreaks under control. Now, is this a way to prevent Ebola forever? Probably not, because it's a zoonotic disease and we're not going to eliminate the reservoir. So vaccines would be great if we could identify those at risk before an outbreak occurred. But as of now, the outbreaks are very sporadic and they tend to occur in isolated areas. On top of that, we don't really know what events are involved in what's likely to be transmission between an infected animal and a human. So for now, we're stuck with a reactive strategy. It might be possible to vaccinate large populations against disease, but a vaccine that was used in that way would have to be relatively inexpensive and incredibly safe to reach a reasonable risk-benefit ratio. Right now, there are some groups that are clearly helped by prophylactic vaccination in advance. That includes caregivers and others who are likely to have contact with Ebola victims. That's a pretty broad range of people. It includes healthcare workers and people all the way to cemetery workers. These results suggest that these folks can be vaccinated in advance to protect them against the next Ebola outbreak. So, Steve, I think as we think about controlling Ebola going forward, looking at the current outbreak in Uganda with Ebola Sudan, as Eric, you pointed out, there are many tried and true control measures that are being deployed and should decrease transmission. What also is going on, I think the WHO has launched a Ebola Sudan vaccine trial. Fortunately, such vaccines were created, a couple of them, and a trial to look at their safety and efficacy is being launched. Hopefully, it will provide us some information on how an Ebola Sudan-targeted vaccine works. It will depend on whether the outbreak continues, and there are cases. If there are not, because control measures work, then that will limit the efficacy signal. However, that is the goal. We need to control and stop the outbreak immediately. And being able to deploy potential tools and study them during an outbreak to determine safety and efficacy is what we need to be doing. And we learned during COVID and during the last Ebola outbreak that we can do it. So I think this is exactly how we need to pre-position countermeasures so that if an outbreak like the Ebola Sudan outbreak occurs, we can deploy new scientific tools to see if they're clinically beneficial. Lindsay, I want to be careful here because I do think that traditional disease control measures are critical. Without them, we're not going to succeed. But vaccines really do change the picture. Isolation and quarantine of patients and contacts is quite cruel. Many of these people are going to die and we're locking them up. Vaccines offer hope to people who might otherwise become ill and have a very high death rate. So vaccination is a key part of the strategy, but it's not the only one. Ebola and COVID are obviously vastly different diseases. Do you see any parallels that could help us think through approaches to each? Steve, let me give you two. And I think it is important to remember that all infectious diseases are distinct and that while we can learn some lessons from each one, they won't necessarily carry over very well. Having said that, 
I think there are a couple of parallels. The first is that the vaccines that we have and the way that we're using those vaccines are unlikely to eliminate either of these diseases, though for very different reasons. As we discussed already, Ebola is a zoonotic disease, and we would have to vaccinate vast numbers of people and continue to vaccinate people for generations to prevent human disease, because presumably the virus will continue to be reintroduced into human populations. For COVID, the vaccines we have don't eliminate disease because they don't efficiently prevent infection and therefore don't prevent transmission. But they do mitigate the consequences of disease. So they remain important tools, just not for disease elimination. The second thing I'd say is that both of these vaccines rely on using antibody titers for clinical trials, again, for very different reasons. For Ebola, there just aren't very many cases, and therefore we don't have the opportunity to measure hard clinical endpoint, the efficacy of the vaccine. So we're stuck with antibodies. For COVID, we have plenty of cases. It's not hard to find them, but we're trying to make vaccines very quickly, faster than we can measure clinical endpoints. So with our most recent vaccines, we're relying on antibodies. This isn't a bad way to go. Antibodies do work as indicators of how well vaccines work. However, they're imperfect, at least right now. And for COVID, what we really care about is whether these vaccines prevent severe disease, and we don't really have the correlates for that. So, Steve, I see a couple of parallels between Ebola, COVID, as well as MPOX. I think understanding the transmission biology is critical because that influences the control measures and then what role vaccines may play in control. I also think that it shows us that research can and should be done during an outbreak. That seems obvious today, but a decade ago, that was called into question. And I hope we have learned the importance of high-quality systematic knowledge to guide our decision-making. And there, High-quality studies during an outbreak can and have been done for all of these diseases, and we need to be better positioned to do more of them faster to allow the best information to guide our response. And thirdly, I think it's important for us to pay attention to responding to an outbreak wherever it is at its earliest stages is the best chance for control. And the knowledge that we learn from vaccines or other control measures in the locale where the epidemic or the outbreak starts is often generalizable, but is also typically the best way to actually control the outbreak and prevent it from becoming more substantive. So I think there are many things that have changed over the last decade as we as a community respond to these outbreaks. And I think vaccines have been a terrific vehicle for us to be able to rapidly apply science to make a big difference in how these diseases spread and the illnesses they cause. Lindsay, let me extend your second point about doing research during an outbreak. You were primarily referring to clinical trials, which are challenging to do during outbreaks, but both COVID and Ebola have shown the tremendous ability of basic science to deliver and deliver on very short timelines. The Ebola vaccines, they were under development, certainly at the time of the large West African outbreak, but they went through the late stages of development and deployment very quickly when there was an indication for them. 
And of course, COVID vaccine development started from scratch and in world record time provided vaccines that were saving lives. Eric, I couldn't agree with you more that the foundational science is critical and should be done as soon as the technology allows us to, particularly during the inter-pandemic period. And that's what I was getting at earlier is we have to invest in understanding the biology and developing tools that can then be deployed. They can be technologies like mRNA, which then get applied to a new pathogen, and they can be development of vaccines through clinical manufacturing ready to be deployed if high transmission events occur, like the Ebola Sudan event that's currently going on. So I think it is a spectrum of investment that's all modest when we think about the overall costs of these disease events. And so that billions of dollars during the inter-pandemic period can save trillions of dollars during the pandemic events. And we need to pre-position countermeasures up through the potential for clinical testing if an event were to occur, saving years of time in development, biologic understanding, and potentially seed lot manufacturing. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.